I mean, it's definitely a provocative title. I'm not under any sort of illusions. Um, but why I like it is because, you know, the word daddy kind of has three resonances in the book, which is Jonah's own father, um, who he has a very um, traumatic and kind of tortured relationship with. Then kind of the person he adopts is his father figure, which is um, Richard, um, mm -hmm. and he kind of puts himself into another traumatic situation with that situation that is connected to his past. And then there's kind of like daddy as in daddy God. everyone welcome back to the ivory tower boiler room i hope you all had a really restful rejuvenating fourth of july weekend week we took a break here but if you didn't see we have our first ever television corner episode of recapping the hbo series the gilded age so check that out that came out on friday and I had such a great time doing it with Danielle Nero, my real estate agent, who is all things all knowing about Gilded Age mansions and the Gold Coast of Long Island. Okay, so you might have thought, oh, Pride Month is over. Okay. I really love the LGBTQ plus content that Ivory Tower Boiler Room amplifies. Guess what? I'm Andrew. And I'm hosting Ivory Tower Boiler Room and directing and I'm so authentic with my openly gay experience and my identity in the university. And with all of these contemporary literature discussions and media discussions, TV shows, you know, this is a part of mm -hmm. what I'm interested in is LGBTQ plus topics and theories, ideas. So there is always going to be LGBTQ plus content here. And I just say that because even though it's not Pride Month anymore, I'm still bringing you LGBTQ plus content. So keep adding to your reading list. Keep recommending, please, our episodes to your family, your friends out there. Uh, there's a lot who don't know what LGBTQ plus literature is as a genre. So our podcast is a great entryway into adding so many books to your reading list. And I love when I hear that those who listen are sharing our episodes with those who could really use these suggestions and dig into these topics because each episode is accessible and I will always make sure that it's a blend of the university scholarly viewpoint and the more public humanities viewpoint. Okay, so on that note, I just want to give a um, note that there is a discussion of sexual abuse that happens in this episode. So just be prepared. Um, I know that some may have to take a break from this episode or, you know, you might have to pause it or skip forward a little when it happens. But I always just like to 
be upfront with you all if there's ever any intense discussion that happens. Okay, so Jonathan Parks Ramage. I hope he knows Jeremy Atherton Lynn. So Jonathan, Jeremy, let me know. DM me um, if you know each other. But I'm bookending Jonathan's Yes Daddy episode, which I can't wait for you all to hear. You've already heard the teaser, which is steamy. And I'm bookending it with Jeremy's nonfiction book, Gay Bar, because both texts you'll hear have this back and forth connection with cruising and Jonathan does it and subverts it with his genre of a queer thriller, a queer psychological thriller. And Jeremy takes it into the history of the gay bars and his own experience in gay bars and the cruising. So that whole idea about what's a fantasy of the gay male aesthetic experience of cruising and what's the reality that could be, a thesis. So anyone out there, hey, maybe I gave you a master's thesis idea. Credit me in your citations. <laughs> okay. But in all seriousness, um, think of the 1970s. Think of Andrew Holleran's Dancer from the Dance. Think of even Larry Kramer. And he has a novel with the slur, the F slur of a gay man. Um I'm not always comfortable saying it. So, you know, you all know what I'm referring to. And he does almost this anthropological fiction account of different gay male personalities who are in Manhattan and then go to Fire Island to the Pines. So we're in this milieu, so to speak. But I can't wait for you to hear what Jonathan does and what Jeremy does to really mix it up with what we trying to parse out what is really the fantasy or the nostalgia that so many are trying to capture, especially younger queer men. What are we trying to go back to? Or, you know, do we want to go back to what we think is that fantasy of cruising or that fantasy of the lifestyle of the pines? Um, okay. And there's going to be a lot more Fire Island discussions to come in the summer. So just you have to be held in suspense, everyone. Okay, can't wait for you all to listen. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jonathan Parks Ramage. Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because I'm not releasing this on the first day of Pride, but this is the first day of Pride with the behind the scenes of the recording. And I don't know how else I would like to commemorate Pride, except with a queer cr thriller, crime, mystery, things gone awry. I mean, it's a wild ride that you're about to go on in this episode. So I'm really happy to be joined by Jonathan Parks Ramage, who, well, first, this is his debut novel, which I'm gonna have to get into because I can't believe this is your debut novel, Jonathan. But he um, has also written for Vice, Slate, Out, W, L, and so many more. Uh, he also is an alumnus of the Breadloaf Writers Conference. He lives in Los Angeles, which I've confirmed with him he's Zooming from. And his partner is Ryan O'Connell, who also has a novel coming out. And we'll touch upon that at the end when I also can pick Jonathan's brain, because I hope there's another novel of yours, Jonathan, coming out soon. So 
All of that is to say I am joined with Jonathan. So hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So thrilled to be here. Yeah. So, well, first, congratulations, because Yes, Daddy, that's his novel. Um, Make sure you all know the title that we'll be referencing a lot. Um, Just came out in paperback form. It did. Yes, it just came out. Oh, my gosh. Yesterday in paperback. So you can get the gorgeous hardcover or if you want a beautiful paperback, it can now also be yours. Yes. So is your paperback also the same cover? Yes. Same cover. Okay. I loved that cover from the very first moment I saw it. Um, And so, yeah, we kept the same cover for the paperback. Yeah. So, well, let's start with your cover because I think it gives us a really interesting look into the genre of what your novel is going to be. So we have this, you know, maybe young man, but a very nicely musculature man swimming in the pool. So like what, you know, why do you think this is such an important touchstone for your readers to see every time they pick your book up? Um, Well, I kind of wanted the cover to seduce the readers much in the way that the protagonist is kind of seduced in the novel. So the novel follows a young aspiring playwright who gets into a relationship with a much older wealthy playwright. Um, And at first the younger writer thinks, oh, like my my every prayer has been answered. This man is going to give me everything I ever wanted. Um, But then the younger writer is invited to the older writer's Hampton's compound for the summer where he's drawn into a web of sexual abuse and assault. So, The cover for me, I feel like um, Kelly Winton is the cover designer. She's done so many amazing books, but um, for me, it kind of perfectly towed that line between, you know, at first glance, it's like a beautiful young man in a pool and it seems gorgeous. But then if you look closer, you realize that the bottom half of the cover, um, the water is tainted with blood. So it kind of, um, for me, hints at kind of this sinister underlayer underneath this world of wealth um, and power um, that exists. So when I first saw the cover, I was like, wow, Kelly nailed it. No, no notes. Literally, there were no notes, which yeah. never happens. Um, but both of us were like, wow, this kind of really perfectly encapsulates um, the vibe of the book. Yeah, well, and I think blue and pink is actually a really nice color scheme that your, uh, you know, novel has taught me in the cover, (laughs) like putting these colors together. Um, So something that really intrigued me when I started your novel is this idyllic um, gay cruising dynamic that you really established. Like at first, it really does follow these traditional gay novels, like whether it be Dancer from the Dance by Andrew Holleran, or whether it be, um, I'm trying to think of others, but it has that nostalgic feel of a gay novel. So was that something you were really tapping into right away is familiarizing (laughs) ourselves? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess, um, I guess I really just thought of myself as a gay man. I don't know if I was consciously trying to evoke a, a, a sort of gay novel in a in a genre type way. I think I was really just kind of tapping into my own 
um, experience as a gay man um, kind of coming of age in New York in the time that the book is set. But I think that, you know, obviously it the book also comes in the tradition of other uh, queer novels like Adventure to the Dance, you know, more recently Garth Greenwell. Um, mm -hmm. There are so many queer authors that I admire and I love kind of being, you know, definitely in conversation um, with other queer authors through my work. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to ask about, even though I'm sure so many ask you if Jonah how much is Jonah based on your life? And it's right, that balance between the author and the actual characters, but we always want to go there. And I mean, I know you're not a play. Well, I don't know if you're an aspiring playwright. I know you have gotten- I'm not. <laughs> well, I know you do though have a screenplay that got um, optioned or it's in yes, production, it's, right? There is a film adaptation of the book, or sorry, a TV series adaptation of the book that's in the works at uh, Amazon currently. Um, yes, but I mean, to answer your question about whether it's autobiographical, the answer is definitely no. I mean, I will say that I, the book to me is more personal than autobiographical. Um, like I said, it there the, the milieu, the time period, um, New York and kind of like 2009, like this, I was in New York at that time. I was coming up at that time. I worked in a horrible gay restaurant, um, much like the one which is depicted in the novel. I did date many older uh, gay men and I did feel kind of the effects of that uh, power dynamic in my personal life, um, but none of kind of the deeper horrors of the book that are described ever <laughs> happened to me. Um, but I do feel like I was kind of working something out psychically within my own um, mind um, <clears throat> about what I went through dating older men during that period of my life, what I wanted, um, kind of my naivete during that period. Um, <clears throat> and so I think for me, you know, I was I was unpacking a lot personally, but you know, again, the 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 book is is definitely personal and not autobiographical. Okay. Well, are you willing to reveal that uh, restaurant or <laughs> would you like to? <laughs> I do not want to end up in a defamation lawsuit as as much as I would love to reveal uh, and warn everyone away, um, I cannot name the name yeah. of the I mean, I'm assuming, well, there's a few neighborhoods that are coming to my mind, like Hell's Kitchen or Chelsea. Yes, it was definitely in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, okay. <laughs> that much. Okay. But um, just because I am such a New York City, I live on Long Island, but I'm from New Jersey. I always go to Manhattan. Yes. Like this novel really does. I love how you just position um, Jonah's quest to really become this playwright and successful artist, like trying to rise up in the ranks in Manhattan um, that I've seen many gay men, you know, kind of go through what you said, like dating older men. Um, I've known older male artists who, 
have tried to court me. And then I realized there was some warning signs that, um, you know, oh, wait, this is a little manipulative of always paying for meals. And I'm like, is this a friendship or is there something in return? And, um, you know, that seems like th that is the realism in your novel. Cause I was, you know, messaging you and I'm trying to think about has this actually, I mean, I hope that there aren't young men <laughs> being used as sex slaves in a basement somewhere, but there is this manipulative power dynamic. So like, you know, how did you process this older, younger dynamic that's going on? Totally. Well, I mean, you know, I'll start by saying that like, obviously I don't want to categorically dismiss all kind of May, December relationships. People obviously pursue them in very healthy ways um, mm -hmm. and they can have very fruitful relationships with someone in a different generation. Um, but when you're talking about kind of the inequities that come up, um, particularly, you know, in this book, it's within the entertainment industry. Um, and obviously this is something we've seen a lot with the Me Too movement, um, but which has been mainly focused on cis white women in the press. However, you know, what I hoped is that I could bring some awareness of sexual harassment and assault within the queer community. And obviously there were stories uh, during the Me Too, kind of the height of Me Too that did come out about, for example, Brian Singer, the X-Men director who kind of had a string of um, accusers as well as obviously Kevin Spacey. Um, so there were obviously, you know, famous people that, that you know, kind of served as the examples of this, but, um, you know, I, I think that it obviously happens to not famous people a hell of a lot more. Um, so anyway, all that being said, I do think that when you're dealing specifically with the entertainment industry and you're dealing with people who are um, aspiring in this industry, which is wildly competitive, um, and you're dealing with people who have limited resources, if you're dealing with people who are at a power disadvantage, they're obviously um, in that power inequity, there becomes a lot of room for abuse if you wish to um, kind of exploit those inequities um, in seeking out, you know, uh, younger men if you're an older, more powerful figure. So, um, you know, and again, this is not unique to gay men in any uh, way, shape or form. However, you know, I, I did want to specifically address gay men and, and within kind of the Me Too you within the book. Yeah, well, and like, I'm not gonna open up to you like a therapist, but cause I've, worked through this with therapy but um like the older man in my life like I had agency in a way over like being in a similar profession and like knowing I didn't need him to um rise up in this like relying on him for favors but yeah. unfortunately Jonah really believes that Richard the successful playwright has all these awards that Richard is going to grant him all of these opportunities. And like you said about the Me Too movement, it is so true that unfortunately this power differential exists and the exploitation exists because there's this tit for tat sexual abuse. And, um, you know, it's not just Jonah. 
I'm not going to spoil a lot for everyone out there because I want them to get yes, daddy. But um, this happens with a pattern of the young men uh, throughout the novel. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's a, it's saddening that um, like those who don't have a voice, especially in the novel with social class, like if you can touch upon that, like why was it so important for these young men, you know, to not have an inheritance or not like be able to be out on their own financially? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, you know, part of what's so disturbing about, again, these many two cases, and specifically I'll use the example of Brian Singer who directed X-Men, Bohemian Rhapsody, um, many, many, many very famous Hollywood films, The Usual Suspects, um, wildly wealthy, very powerful. Um, but there were for years rumors about him and he hosted these kind of parties where he invite all these boys over, many of them underage, get them completely drunk, um, assault them. Um, and so there are always these rumors kind of floating around about him. And, you know, what eventually came out is that, you know, as his victims, he chose people who were severely economically disadvantaged, who wanted to be in the entertainment industry. He chose people who were young, who had a lot to lose if they came out publicly as, um, you know, victims of sexual abuse. Um, and then even later when, I mean, there's a fascinating article in the Atlantic that was kind of the article about, um, that kind of aggregated all of these accusations and finally was the Me Too article that everyone's kind of waiting for about him. But then there was also an accompanying article in the Columbia Review of Journalism where the journalists who put together the piece kind of described their journey putting the story together. Mm -hmm. And it was actually another publication first, but the other publication turned it down um, because the publisher disbelieved the accusers, despite the fact that it was an ironclad piece of reporting because the accusers were um, had worked as sex workers, had substance abuse problems, had, uh, were financially disadvantaged, were poor. So for all of these reasons, which re are reasons that actually make someone more vulnerable to sexual abuse and assault, for those same reasons, they're also disbelieved as victims. And so these, this, this, someone who is at that, that disadvantage is an ideal person for someone to exploit um, because they don't have, first of all, really the power to speak up, but then if they do, they will be disbelieved because of quote unquote character flaws, which, you know, people use to discount what they're saying. Oh, they're a sex worker. They can't be, you know, sexually assaulted or, oh, they're, you know, a drug addict. So do we really believe them? It's like, no, of course you shouldn't believe them because, you know, the very fact that they're so much more vulnerable makes this even more believable that someone dark and twisted would exploit those vulnerabilities. Yeah. Well, and I also want to just congratulate, maybe it's not the right word. Um, want to thank you for really bringing, um, you know, cisgender gay sexual abuse to the forefront in this fictive, you know, nightmare hallucinatory way. 
of a novel, just because I think it's so important to realize that unfortunately, a lot of these stories, like you're saying, do exist, but they just don't get as much airtime with maybe the mainstream media. I remember when those male models came forward who had, I don't remember who was accused, but they had gone on The View and um, I really had never heard anything after that. Um, And yeah, it's just this whole idea though of a mentor, like is this figure who has a different power dynamic, is it a mentor or is it someone who's manipulating you? And that's a really, I think, hard line to, or something really difficult to um, parse out. And yeah. Well, difficult to parse out if if you're having sex with this person. I feel like, yeah. I feel like hopefully if you have a mentor, I mean, mentor figures can be wonderful, um, but obviously if you're then having sex with your mentor, that does blur some lines significantly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, well, and when this certain person that I'm thinking of uh, who is in the city, um, you know, offered, not offered, but was asking for sexual favors and I refused, I realized, wait, this is like, Andrew, you're probably not the first one who's been taken under this mentorship guise. And that's, I think what's even more disturbing is who are the ones who've been exploited? Like yeah. who are the ones I don't know? And yeah, but- um, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That sounds upsetting. Yeah, well, and it, yeah, and it's upsetting when, you know, when you think that um, someone is going to be your mentor and like saw a talent in you, right? Yeah. Like in my case, it was a scholarly talent, but like in Jonah's case, it's a writerly talent of- you know, his creativity. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's also a huge issue in your novel about religious trauma, specifically Jonah's like evangelical upbringing. And, um, you know, I definitely want to get to that just because I realized that someone who writes a blurb about your book is, um, Gar- is it Garrard Connolly? Yes. So who wrote Boy Erased? And um, I have something to tell you later about Wheaton College, just because now that I look back, I realize why I didn't receive a certain summer uh, journey there. Um, But no, no. So I didn't go to Wheaton. I'll just I'm not going to hold you in suspense, Jonathan. That's not right. Um, So when I was an undergrad, Wheaton College does their like summer internship or summer research program. Uh And I was still um, doing my English major work. So I applied there thinking, oh, this is a really nice, like, summer uh, research experience. But Mm -hmm. all of my application was about doing queer 19th century research. I, yeah. I I had no idea what Wheaton's affiliation was. Uh, Wheaton is a, for those listening who don't know, Wheaton is a horrifically conservative evangelical college. And so, yes, <laughs> that would not have gone well. So I just been. wonder what happened when they read that application. But <laughs> they probably thought I was doing some kind of um, provocative, <laughs> like, um, doing a protest application. Yeah, totally. I mean, but, 
now I, I don't apologize for what I did after reading <laughs> and seeing how Wheaton figures in the novel. So, right, your titular character, Jonah, goes to Wheaton College. And um, I mean, I don't want you to have to open up too much about your own religious, you know, trauma. But like, is there a connection that like you've gone through a certain whether it be the evangelical church or you had a certain religious trauma that was yes. being explored. I, I, um, I grew up, my father was a minister, though he was not um, evangelical. Um, so I did not, so it's, it's different than what is explored um, in the book, certainly. Um, but, I will say that regardless, I, even though my parents were ultimately accepting, um, with the time when I came out, my father was pastor at a church in a conservative small town in Massachusetts. So um, the vibe was like, we're not gonna tell anyone at church essentially um, mm -hmm. that you're gay. So there was kind of this like spiritual, I think break that happened for me where I was like, oh, you cannot be gay and Christian. That kind of happened at an early kind of formative age. Um, and it wasn't until much later when I lived in Los Angeles that I found this um, community of LGBTQ, Christians who had all left the evangelical church, um, often after experiencing, you know, intense trauma, um, whether it was from conversion therapy or just, you know, being in a space which disavows who you are fundamentally. Um, and so I found myself really becoming involved with that um, community and really kind of having a new understanding of what you know, faith could be, and that it doesn't have to look like this kind of evil, um, evangelical, dogmatic, Christo-fascist bullshit that we see so much from the right, um, that it can actually be beautiful and that it can be a place, I mean, specifically this community is very much devoted to kind of examining um, intersectional social justice, and it's so queer um, in such a beautiful way and so racially diverse. And it's just, it's a really beautiful community. And so, you know, but I, I kind of wanted to, in, in, in giving Jonah this background, you know, also kind of illustrate the ways that trauma can reverberate across a lifetime, the way that something you experience as a child can obviously, you know, impact um, how you move through the world as an adult. Hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my, my interest in weaving in, you know, Jonah's history uh, uh, in evangelicalism and how you know, experiencing trauma at a young age can also leave you vulnerable to potentially experiencing trauma in older age. Obviously not always, but in Jonah's case, you know, um, the la his lack of a father figure because of kind of the rift with his family um, and his longing for family when he feels like he doesn't have any family um, leads him to seek that out in someone who is not trustworthy and not a safe person. Um, 
but he seeks it out anyway. Yeah. Well, and I was listening. Well, so I've been listening to Kevin R. Free reading Yes, Daddy. Oh, yes. I love him. Yeah. And he's been so nice in his DMs. And yeah, I have to say everyone involved with Yes, Daddy, you have like such um, wonderful energy of people. Oh, Um, so happy to hear. Yeah, I love Kevin. He did such a beautiful job on the book. Well, and I'm sure, you know, listening definitely to Jonah going through conversion therapy, like there's moments where I wanted to stop. Like there are moments where I've paused and just reflected because it's so, you know, like Boy Erased or like so many of these traumatic conversion therapy narratives, like to actually try to find Jonah to go through his repressed memories, but not with a trained counselor, but someone who's like trying to have him concoct a narrative about whether his father abused him. It's just, it's, it's so upsetting, but also again, so based in the ills of conversion therapy and how, you know, they cause lasting trauma to anyone who has to undergo that. So, I mean, again, is this something like you knew that you really wanted to feature this because of, you know, how it does deeply impact those who, you know, are being, are not able to live their authentic life with their sexuality. Like that was something that you were processing. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I also, I also, where before I, you know, published the book, I worked for a while as a journalist. I haven't done it as much recently, but I was for a while covering um, the this kind of queer Christian movement that's emerged of a lot of people kind of leaving the evangelical church um, and, and trying to reclaim their faith in a setting that's not toxic and doesn't repress them. And so I was doing a lot of reporting with and working with various activists and activist groups and um, really shining a spotlight on these communities. And so I wanted, again, I mean, I just heard so many horror stories and it's not based on anyone who I, I have covered as a journalist, so I wanna make that clear. And, but, but taking you know, the real life uh, tactics of conversion therapists and just kind of presenting them plainly, um, you know, I hope is enough to kind of wake people up who aren't already, you know, alert to the horrors that, um, you know, the horror of conversion therapy. Yeah, well, yeah. And thank goodness so many states, well, many more states over the last few years are starting to ban conversion therapy. Um, Yes. Of course, but they, uh, you know, I mean, people, it still happens within churches, regardless of what yeah. the law, it still happens under different names. And I'm also not particularly optimistic, given all the anti-queer and trans legislation that's being passed in red states, kind of left and um, right these days. Um so, yeah, I, 
I don't know. It's it's something that definitely needs to be discussed. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, more and more people discussing it in a public space. Yeah, well, and this is where I think there's such an important aspect of fiction, which is like, we think sometimes that we're going to escape our lives, like when we're reading a novel, but like, if you really, and I think a majority of people who pick up your novel probably don't know the deep traumatic impact of conversion therapy. And this is where it's so important to sit with what Joan is going through because this is the power and knowledge that literature gives you, which it opens your eyes to realize, wait, this is such a problem in America or wherever this is happening. So, you know, this is where you are doing transformative work through the guise of fiction. Yeah, I wanted to, I mean, that's part of another reason I've been doing so much of that work as a journalist and working with these activist groups. And I, I wanted to carry some of that over into the novel and bring it to a different group, a different audience, a different, um, a wider audience. Um, so yeah, I wanted to definitely incorporate that um, into yeah. the book. Yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out how do we transition now into explicit sex? Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, <laughs> we've, we've covered a lot of, you know, important psychological, traumatic um, layers in your novel, but right. There's also, there is a lot of desire as a philosophical lens and angle. And I think maybe the best way is just Richard's. We've been talking about power differential relationships. So, you know, Richard, when he's reading Jonah's play and trying to, he's giving him what Jonah thinks is, um, mentorly advice. He says, Richard, that Jonah's play offers this theme of the things we worship eating us alive. And it seems like that really is, if you were doing a dissertation, that's the heart of your dissertation. So like, you know, why maybe that quote, like, how does that enter into what you're processing? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, to worship something, to believe in it so blindly that you're willing to lay down your entire life for it. It, it, it there's also another line that's, that says desire places us in dangerous positions. I think it's in the same chapter. Um, and I think that that desire to be successful playwright or the desire to be saved by God, like these, these kind of, these absolutely kind of 
um, zero-sum games that desire kind of forces you to play where you're like you have to, it's you have to be all in and that means you're willing to do anything um i think that that yeah can place people in dangerous positions because there's nothing you won't do or there's nothing you won't put up with and i think that in that particular line i mean richard richard is very familiar with the concept of you know the things we worship eating us alive because um you know he's very is he knows at that point what his intentions are with Jonah and he knows how to manipulate um, someone else's desires for his own gain and his own kind of dark appetites. Yeah, well, but, and you're also, I mean, I'm sure you've heard from your readers. Hopefully, if not, everyone reach out to Jonathan. Um, I have, I love connecting with- Yes, with, yes, with, and, with, um, and he's so responsive. No, well, I don't want to give you pressure now, Jonathan, to like <laughs> have to respond to all your DMs. As many as I can, yes. Yes, but there's so much arousing language you use too. I mean, obviously, like you're explicitly talking about cocks and, you know, the body, the male body and like the way sex feels. And again, like there's consensual moments and there's non-consensual. And again, it's this blurring of boundaries. Is it difficult for you to write so explicitly about sex, like using that language? Um, I mean, I, I definitely, sex, sex, both consensual and non-consensual is such a hugely important part of this book. And um, you know, so it was very important for me to depict it and also depict kind of the gradations of sex and also depict an accurate a feeling of what those sexual experiences feel like, um, kind of from the inside. So never, never did I want a scene to ever feel gratuitous. There's always something happening to the character that warrants the scene and there's always something that we learn about them through that sexual experience um and so that was kind of my personal rule of thumb in terms of sexual experiences is like this always has to serve a function in the narrative and helping us understand a character's journey so i mean as you mentioned like the first sex scene we see in the book is consensual and it's something that is a very positive sexual experience for Jonah and it's one that has kind of like BDSM tinges to it and he finds kind of therapeutic relief and release in in the power dynamic at play um but then you know what happens later is Richard kind of betrays that trust um and you know because you have to have real trust with someone in order to kind of be engaged in a healthy kind of BDSM situation with someone. And Richard betrays that trust and exploits that trust and forces him into situations which are not consensual. And so, uh, but I, I did want to kind of paint both sides of the coin in terms of, you know, sex and, and show Jonah not just in sexually exploitative situations, but also one that he finds, um, erotic and powerful and and that he actually enjoys. Yeah, well, and I'm telling you, like you really bring alive just the whole idea of eroticism, arousal, 
that it's not just the physical act of sex, but it's that foreplay of even rhetoric, the foreplay that's involved in texting someone, sexual language, right? Like a lot of it, a lot of arousal depends on the precipitating um, action that's going to happen. So I think you really do bring this whole dynamic to bear. Like even when they're on the beach and Jonah, you know, sees his friend Rashad, like sex is in the air, but it doesn't have to just manifest in one way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, okay. So I Southampton is such a locus in your novel. Um, I'm not going to reveal to everyone all the dark, twisted turns, but there are many. Um, and I know that you must have chosen the Hamptons over the Fire Island Pines or Cherry Grove for some reason. So I have to ask, as a Long Island transplant now, like why why Southampton? Because it's such an interesting. It's a it's not a place I would pinpoint this action. Interesting. I mean, I wanted some place that definitely felt like a wealthy enclave um, and kind of like a New York cultural hub. Um, and it was also simply. Um, the landscape that I was most familiar with. So, I mean, I think a huge part of me in kind of painting a realistic setting came from my own experience going to Southampton. Um, so I think that is kind of the number one, the number one reason. I mean, I do think it represents kind of power, wealth, cultural um, importance, kind of the, um, the milieu that that Richard occupies. Um, but also, yeah, it was just my sheer experience with the the setting that I, I felt I could, you know, do it, do it justice. Yeah, well, I actually I'm going to be spending some time in Southampton. So I mean, I'm now uh, let's just say when I'm walking in the village of Southampton, my eyes are going to be wide. <laughs> I, I might be <laughs> A little frightened now. We have a beautiful <laughs> summer moment. I, I hope that my book doesn't ruin Southampton. <laughs> no, no, it won't. I mean, and see, but I, I'm really glad, though, that you do choose the Hamptons over Fire. Not over, but you don't choose Fire Island because I feel like Fire Island is such a, um has this party and has this young energy. But you're right. In Southampton, there's the old money status it's isolating with the hedges of the homes. So it's yeah. so unexpected. Like you would never think that dark, you know, um, sexual abuse is lurking behind the mannered homes. So I get it. it it's, yeah. it's, a great, it's a great subversion of that artistic village. Yes, no, that yeah. was definitely my, my hope is to kind of, yeah, expose an underbelly. Um, and pull back the mirror of you know wealth and kind of glamour of of cultural elites. Yeah. Well, and I really hope that um, when this is turned into the uh, series, right? You said it's going to be a limited series. Yes. Okay. I hope that it can be filmed in the Hamptons, but I know how hard the Hamptons is to yeah, grant. We'll see. I'm just yeah. I have 
but that's that'll be far in the future but um yeah i mean yeah the setting is so important so yes yeah yeah but um i think like as we've now journeyed into the setting i really have to you know just pick your mind a little about you know the phrase yes daddy um has so many um different interpretations in your novel but like right away like what do you think the general public really you know interprets when they even read your title like have you gotten feedback oh sure i mean it's definitely a provocative title i'm not under any sort of illusions um but why i like it is because you know the word daddy kind of has three resonances in the book, which is Jonah's own father, um, who he has a very um, traumatic and kind of tortured relationship with. Then kind of the person he adopts is his father figure, which is um, Richard. Um, mm -hmm. And he kind of puts himself into another traumatic situation with that situation that is connected to his past. And then there's kind of like daddy as in daddy god um who is kind of the father um you know is in traditional evangelical cis heteropatriarchal uh, interpretation of the bible is viewed as a father figure and there is so much of jonah in the book um kind of grappling with um god the and specifically the idea of a male god um and a male god who is also a father and that ties into his relationship with both of them and then you know in terms of the yes part obviously it brings into uh brings into the title the question of consent um yes daddy like like jonah enters this relationship with richard uh, in a consensual way and kind of fools himself into believing for so long, even as he's being abused, um, that this is what he really wants. Um, so I also kind of wanted to tie in the question of consent into the title. And so that's kind of why it was, yes, daddy. Um, so there is, it is provocative, but there actually is a lot of thought behind it. Yeah, no, thank you for outlining those different resonances. Um, Right, you've kind of, you provided this really nice essay. <laughs> Three resonances of the word daddy. Someone needs to take you up on that <laughs> for their uh, like thesis and look at how daddy's been used all throughout like gay literature's history. I mean, um, yes, this is the thesis I want to read. Yeah, see, but, um, and I also like that there's the comment after yes, because like there's this deliberate pause and it does really play into that, um, like the BDSM, it could be the BDSM culture of consent, like you said, based in consent about having the unequal power dynamic, but it's role-playing and there's so much yeah. to that. But um, when it's not consensual and it's not, like the rules haven't been agreed on, the exploitation involved. So, yes, yeah. Um, I love the title. It really gets to the heart of the theme of your novel. And I think as we're like wrapping up, I'm just really curious about feedback you've received that might have surprised you or 
even aspects of your novel that you write, you're so in the weeds when you're writing. So like, what's some feedback you got that you didn't even really, you weren't thinking about when you were writing? I think the thing, for me, what has been interesting, I mean, let me first say, I've connected with so many readers and I am so grateful for all the stories stories that everyone has shared with me. There are so many people who have been so connected to the novel and taken away so much, which has been so beautiful. And it's been really wonderful to see how it's moved through the world. And I'm just so, so grateful to everyone who has read this book and had you know an emotional experience while reading this book um, and for everyone who's reached out. So that is so wonderful. I think what's been interesting is the ways in which some people, I think, because I, I imagine that that the book would potentially be viewed as controversial by some, um, but it was, interestingly, it was not viewed as controversial for the reasons I thought it would be viewed as controversial, which I thought it would be viewed as controversial because of the kind of intense scenes of, of sexual abuse and assault in the book. Mm. Um, it, that was not, not really so much something that I saw. What I saw though is people really coming up hard against the ending. And I'll I'll just say, spoiler alert, if you have not read it, press pause, do not listen any further. Um, but what surprised me, because in the end of the book, you know, there Jonah has a reckoning with his own spirituality. And um his father has kind of left the evangelical church because of all the horror that it caused him in his life um, and has started this kind of queer uh, ex-evangelical um, church. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much focused on reclaiming Christianity and making space for queer people in it and not, and basically being the opposite of, of the evangelical church. And that obviously is something that I saw a lot and I was even a part of a community which is very similar. Um, to that. And I saw so much beautiful healing in that as like people being able to reclaim their faith. But I think that many queer people have been so traumatized by the church that they are so resistant to any idea of Christianity whatsoever and Mm -hmm. can't see that nuance, can't see how it could be healing for someone who experienced religious trauma to find a version of religion that doesn't traumatize them. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't deny them who they are in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I think that, understandably, people have been so, you know, turned off by evangelicalism that they're willing to consider that any form of Christianity can be welcoming to queer people. Um, you know that 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 there is a certain kind of closed-mindedness on behalf of many queer people that like, no, if you're gay, you can't be Christian. And that's also it's similarly evangelical and it's like rigid black and white, yes and no, um, either or. And in that, in the middle are so many people who are trying to grapple with this lifelong faith and how they can find room for themselves in it. Um, so I do think that there is beautiful healing that can be done if it's in a safe space, if it's in a community, which is truly affirming of of who you are and you can find those spaces. Um, so that was what interested me is the pushback from gay people who I think refuse to see the nuance and just the minute the word Christianity 
is uttered its red flags. See, and that's so interesting. Um, but I'm glad that you go there again because you find that healing space and yeah. it is this type of redemptive arc that you eventually, after so much horror that Jonah lives through, there is redemption. Um, I mean, but you didn't really receive any kind of pushback that you were kind of going against um, the like heteronormative showing cisgender gay white men in a positive light, right? Because like that to me has kind of been what I love about your novel is that you break those boundaries. Oh, 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 yes. I mean, some people are, I mean, look, you go online and you read enough good reviews, you'll find people who complain about everything. Um, but, <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think that there are now enough queer narratives in the culture that the burden of representation doesn't have to fall on one book. Mm -hmm. And I am, yes, able to present, you know, cis, white gay male characters who are very problematic and unsympathetic um which i just think is realistic um yeah. and i think that you know i feel like in maybe another era there was a pressure on anything that came out in the culture to just paint like queer people as like wholesome rainbow flag touting good citizens who did nothing wrong and I, I think that what is great is that now we are able to paint, you know, queer people in all sorts of light, which give us better representation because it is human representation. Um, because if you're just painting people as, you know, kind of caricatures of wholesome goodness and identity politics, you're not painting a true person. Um, so yes, there are many a toxic cis white gay in this book but there are in real life as well <laughs> yeah 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 there are and that's so. why i i really feel like this is the i keep saying it but like this last year two years three years this is a type of lgbtq renaissance of literature and the arts that is really exciting like yeah. you said all the angles are being shown and that just gives more human agency to the LGBTQ community. So I'll thank you for, you know, saying that, Jonathan, and, you know, kind of reading my mind. Um, so, you know, I definitely want to know where does Jonathan Parks Ramage go after Yes Daddy? Because. Totally. Yeah. Um, I've been working on a new novel. Um, and I'm currently in the second draft of that novel. Um, and I, I cannot say when it's gonna be done. A novel is something that tells you when it's finished. And right now it's just not finished. Um, but I feel confident. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I don't know. I'm hoping not to get too granular, but I'm hoping that I can kind of finish finish the book and get it ready for the market by the end of the summer is kind oh. of what I'm I'm hoping and then take it out to publishers. Um, but yeah, I'm eyeballs deep, uh, eyeballs deep in my, <laughs> in my new novel. <laughs> That's, a, yeah, I feel like there's some kind of sexual pun there, but <laughs> we don't have to go with, <laughs> I like the eyeballs deep. Okay. That's a great, I'm going to steal that phrase now. Um, yeah, 
but I'll credit you. Don't worry. Um, so is it going to be full of that same suspense and mystery? Or are you kind of diverging from? Um, I will say it, uh, it, it definitely moves with suspense. It's, um, set in a near future Los Angeles, but a very grounded, um, near future. Um, and it is, I think, similarly propulsive in certain ways, but then also very different in others. Um, so oh. I think I think people are going to like it. I hope. <laughs> I'm sure they will. No, I like. I get. It. I get it. Yeah. I'm just talking about something which is still in process. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and I just I don't mean to be coy about the details, but. I just, it's like still in its little like baby cocoon stage. So I have to protect my gestating child. Um, yeah, I get it. I get it. While it's, while it's in the works. No, I like the, I like the ambiguity. It's, you're giving us a very mysterious queer vibe right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, and I'm also yeah. happy it's going to be in LA because there's so many LA writers, but there actually aren't a lot of LA novels. Um, New York, honey. I mean, obviously there are many novels that are not set in New York, but New York is a hub and I feel like overrepresented perhaps in the realm of American fiction. Um, But yeah, I, I, I think I love Los Angeles. I, there's also so much darkness here. So I, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to do an LA novel. Yeah. I'm excited too. Well, and you definitely, are welcome back, Jonathan. I want to, <laughs> we'll get into that when it comes out. No pressure, no pressure. Yes, no, for sure. No, no, no. Um, and um, also, you know, just because you're here with me, you know, what is your partner, Ryan? What is his new novel called? Just so everyone can also oh, yeah, piggyback sure. with your novel. Yes, it's, yes, it's called Just By Looking At Him. Um, and it comes out June 7th. I don't know when this will air, but it'll probably be out or you can pre-order. Um, yeah, yeah it comes out June 7th and it's fabulous and gay and set in Los Angeles. Um, oh, there we go. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful book. I Good. Well, it. so yeah, have Yes Daddy and um, have Ryan O'Connell's book with you too. So you can have like, you know, you can go back and forth at the pool. Yes. Some exactly. nice, nice bookends. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been yes, wonderful. Thank you. This is so fun. Yes, yes. And all of you out there, make sure you get your hands on Yes Daddy or get the audiobook. Like I told you, it is a riveting listen to. Um, so yeah, you have some summer reading, everyone out there <laughs> to do. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. 
Our team includes Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Nicole Arguello, our marketing assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays. Thank you.